This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everyone. Uh, good morning. Welcome back to BIEB 152, Evolution of Infectious Disease. Uh, this is lecture number 15. Uh, and today's lecture is going to be on host range expansion evolution. Uh, so obviously this is relevant for uh, the pandemic that we're going through right now. The pandemic is a case where a bat virus uh, emerged in the human population and then spread obviously around the globe uh, so that we're all impacted by it. Uh, so the first step is for that expansion to happen. Um, in a couple lectures, we'll talk about SARS-CoV-2 uh, evolution and specifically what kinds of information is out there on the genetic changes that may have led to its emergence. Uh, but today we're going to talk about uh, viruses that uh, we know a lot better uh, and that I can give you more definitive information on how that process actually works. So as always, let's start the lecture and let's start with uh, checking the temperature, or taking the temperature of COVID-19. Okay, um, so the, the um, steady flow of news about COVID-19 you know, has been persistent, uh, but it does seem that um, things are slowing down a little bit, uh, at least in the last week. Uh, so I had to kind of scrape the bottom uh, to find uh, some interesting, really science-based news to share with you guys. Um, but this is certainly not the bottom. This is actually good news in that there are um, trials going on for where, where uh, doctors are using already existing medications that are used for um, combating other viruses or even things like malaria uh, and seeing whether or not they impact uh, COVID-19 and can help uh, cure patients of, of COVID-19. And so one of the trials that's underway um, and there's some preliminary data that was released in The Lancet, uh, reported that a combination treatment of three different HIV drugs, so these are the three HIV drugs down here, um, it, when you give them, when you give these patients this combination treatment, uh, they end up clearing the virus uh, much faster, about 40% faster uh, than patients, the, the control group that, um, that wasn't given uh, the medication. And actually there was a control group where they gave two of the three types of medication. Uh, and that group actually didn't show any difference um, uh, between people that didn't get the medication and people that got the two types of medication. So this is a really interesting drug, drug, drug interaction. So a three-way interaction uh, where all three of them uh, give you some kind of therapeutic quality. Um, but if you only have two of three, then uh, you don't get the same uh, level of therapeutic um, effects. And the effects are so little with just two that you actually can't uh, distinguish them uh, statistically. So we've talked a lot about drug-drug interactions and mutation-mutation interactions. And I've talked a lot about how biological systems really are infused with all of these complex interactions. It's what makes them beautiful, but also makes them so complicated and hard to understand um, and hard to develop drugs for. Uh, but in this case, uh, we can actually leverage a three-way interaction in order to uh, fight off COVID-19. So I'm sure that there's going to need to be more research on this, uh, but this seems like 
Another pro promising angle to treat patients with COVID-19. Um, and it just gives us another proof point that certainly this virus is not indestructible and we can develop therapies uh, that, that stop it. Okay, so the next thing that I wanted to go over in the news, um, and this is not as much news as just information about vaccines and about approaches that people are taking to develop vaccines for the coronavirus. Uh, and I'm gonna stop sharing this and actually just go to the, the article. This is a great article, very simple. You can see uh, nice illustrations of the way that different uh, companies and governments and so forth are approaching developing vaccines. And so the key to developing a vaccine is that you present your body with uh, a compound that is present in the coronavirus and then your body learns that that's a foreign agent, develops um, an immune response to it, and then hopefully remembers that, that foreign agent and maintains that immune response, and then that provides you immunity to the virus. So if you get infected later after getting the vaccine, uh, you fight off that virus. And so all of these strategies, the key is to understand how, what, what kinds of molecules are they presenting to the body, how are they delivering them, um, and so there's lots of different techniques and they have costs and benefits, this article discusses. Uh, the one that I found really interesting is uh, this adenovirus um, approach. And so one of your TAs, Tiger Saltman, is actually uh, an expert in adenovirus and uh, engineering adenovirus in ways that could be actually helpful uh, to humans. Um, and so in this case, what the researchers are doing is they're using adenovirus, and this is an, an adenovirus that isn't able to replicate, but is able to otherwise function as a virus. It's a human virus, and so it obviously it affects our cells. And uh, what people can do is they can augment the DNA of this virus, have the virus deliver that DNA to cells, and then augment the behavior of the cells based on the genes that were delivered, and that can have good effects. Uh, adenovirus can be used to uh, kill off uh, cancer cells. Adenovirus can be used to deliver all kinds of different genes. Um, this is all very experimental therapies at the moment. Uh, but the idea here is they are programming the adenovirus to deliver the spike protein gene um, of SARS-CoV-2. And then your cells express that, that spike protein and then your immune system uh, sees that spike protein and develops an immunity to that spike protein. So it's this crazy kind of roundabout way of doing it, but it's apparently a lot easier to produce and it might actually be even more effective than other ways of just directly giving the spike protein um, to us. And so I think that's pretty fascinating. There's, there's other strategies that are similar to that that I think are interesting and are, are promising, especially when you consider that you have to have a technology that can easily scale up so that we can deliver billions of vaccine around the world. Uh, let's actually get into the lecture. Um, so this is a lecture actually where I get to talk a little bit about my research, uh, which I'm excited about to share with you guys. And um, yeah, it's a very, I, I find the subject obviously really fascinating. That's what I've dedicated a lot of my life to, to studying. Okay, so the question is, where do new viruses come from? Often in the news, you'll see this, you know, you'll see this, this terminology, new virus, novel coronavirus, and so forth. 
Um, so where do new viruses come from? Well, we've kind of talked about this already, but new viruses are not really new viruses. They're new to us viruses. And so um, viruses, when, when a human population gets a new virus like Ebola or bird flu or swine flu, or now we're dealing with a new coronavirus, uh, where it comes from is a reservoir species. Uh, so a species that it um, typically spreads in and infects. Um, and then for whatever reason, it jumps into a new host and it can jump into uh, even humans. Uh, and so this is just a cycle of the emergence that happens for Ebola. Ebola is a case where we associate Ebola as a human virus um, because so many, so often human populations um, in Africa especially are impacted by Ebola or infected by Ebola. Um, but each of those different outbreaks of Ebola consists of a new host range expansion where Ebola is typically uh, passed around uh, in bat populations and then can transfer to other species and can transfer into humans. When it happens in humans, it causes a really bad epidemic. Um, and, but it's so bad uh, that typically it kind of burns itself out and doesn't become a persistent virus in human populations. And so it's usually a short-lived epidemic and then it, it burns itself out. We talked a little bit about that uh, with the r not lectures. Okay, so, um, and this is just a case, uh, this diagram is just showing us how you can have um, viruses spreading in, in bats, and then you can even have cycles where the virus is infecting bats, but is also infecting other species, and maybe recombining with viruses in those other species, and then you can get transfer into humans, or you can get direct transfer from bats uh, into humans as well. Uh, and then the question is, once it jumps into humans, does it have the right characteristics that it can then spread from one human to the next human? So often viruses can make that first step to get into humans, uh, but it's harder for it to take the next step to then spread in humans. You only get these pandemics um, or even local epidemics if you have um, uh, the right characteristics in the virus so that it can do human-to-human -human transmission. Okay, so earlier in the lectures, we talked about predicting where in the world the next pandemic is likely to happen. And we talked about this research by EcoHealth Alliance. They had that heat map where it showed around the world certain hotspots for where um, epidemic or pandemics are likely to start, where this disease emergence is likely to start. And, uh, but now you can kind of ask a similar question, and they've asked this question of, well, what, what virus is likely um, to cause the next pandemic? And so we're not really that good at answering this question, but we do know that there's some facts that, un, that help us uh, get towards answering that question. The premise of the question is that we know that there's hundreds of thousands of mammalian viruses out there. So there's tons and tons of viruses that infect mammals. Um, ones that infect mammals are likely to be the ones that can infect us because you know we're genetically similar we have different we have the same physiologies we have similar body temperatures and so forth um, and so the question is you know which of those mammalian viruses uh, can actually spill over into humans and uh, the researchers think that there's actually probably only a handful so there's hundreds of thousands but actually maybe only a handful of them are appropriate 
to actually make a trans transition into humans. And so what researchers have found is that viruses of bats, primates, and rodents tend to be the ones that spill over. The reason for that are a number of factors. Um, there's two factors that boost the chance of animal to human shift. Uh, so these have been found to be statistically significant. Certainly there's many, many other factors that we could isolate as well. Uh, but how closely related the animal is to humans. So the more similar genetically an, an animal is, so chimpanzees are the most similar to us. So chimpanzees are most likely um, going to, or viruses that infect chimpanzees are most likely the ones that can easily spread into humans. But that's not the full story um, because you also have to factor in how often a chimpanzee comes in contact with humans versus other organisms that might be a little bit more distantly related, um, but we come in contact more often, increasing the opportunity for a virus that is maybe even not that great at humans uh, to make that transition into humans. Uh, and so the second factor is how much time that animal spends in urban areas. Uh, so certainly uh, rodents spend a lot of time in urban areas and uh, can be the source of these um, spillover events. So spillover just means spilling over from an animal into a human. And so, yeah, so we can take those two factors and then help us isolate what types of viruses are likely to infect us, spread to us. And then there, there is a viral characteristic that we can measure um, that determines whether or not it's likely to spill over into humans. And it's if a virus is more promiscuous, that means that it has a broad host range and can infect multiple different um, mammalian species, then it's likely to acquire the characteristics to then jump into humans as well. Uh, so yeah, so these are just sort of the basics of what we know so far. Uh, certainly, there's a lot more research that, that needs to be done on this work to, to pinpoint um, what are the exact factors and what are the exact genetic signatures that would trigger uh, viral emergence into human populations. So influenza um, is a virus that is known to be able to transition between lots and lots of different host species and not just between mammals um, but even between um, birds and mammals and so here is a phylogeny on the right that is a phylogeny constructed of many many different strains of influenza and then uh, associated with each of these strains is where they're isolated from. And you can see that each of these strains was isolated from a very different species. So we have pigs and uh, chickens and we have ducks and humans. Uh, we even have a tiger down here um, and uh, horses over here. And so you can see that, through that throughout the evolution of influenza, it has made many, many, many different host shifts. So when I had been giving these lectures in the past, uh, I really focused this lecture on influenza. And the reason why is we had in the first lecture predicted that the conditions in the world were such that they were, we were now more susceptible to pandemics. And then this lecture was on influenza and how it could maybe cause the next pandemic. Obviously I was wrong in that influenza is not the source of the next pandemic um, coronavirus was. Uh, but we know a lot about influenza in part because we were so afraid of it uh, transitioning into human populations. And to be honest, um, bird flu is 
uh, a strain of influenza that is very close to possibly causing a pandemic and it has the characteristics like coronavirus where it's highly contagious and it actually has more virulence than the normal flu and so it could um, be the next the next culprit so i know that we can't really we don't have the mental energy to think about these things in the future um, we just have to deal with the current coronavirus pandemic but we need to invest in research um, in order to uh, stop these from happening. And I, I guess I'm going to digress here for a second. This EcoHealth Alliance actually had their funding cut uh, because they were working with a virology lab in Wuhan. And there are conspiracy theories about this virus emerging from a lab and, and maybe even being constructed in a lab. And so the NIH cut funding to this group. I've lectured about this group for five years, and the reason why I lecture about this group is because I think they're asking the right questions, they're doing very interesting research, um, and I'm always interested to read their papers as they come out. And so I think it's a terrible idea uh, to cut funding from this group, unless the NIH knows more information than I, than I know about what's going on. Um, it seems uh, foolish to cut funding to a group that I think is uh, doing great research and, and is probably closest to being able to predict uh, where in the world a pandemic is likely to happen and also for what viruses will, will likely to cause the, the next pandemic. You know, obviously this is really important research to fund. Okay, so let's get back to this phylogeny. So the pattern is that we see lots and lots of emergences, lots and lots of uh, host transitions. And so um, the question that you might want to ask is, well, how many times have those hosts have, has the virus actually transitioned? And when did that virus transition? Um, and then what were the genetic changes that happened in that part of the phylogeny, in that part of its evolutionary history that allowed it to transition? And so to answer all of these questions, what we have to do is we have to use this phylogenetic information uh, and then try to reconstruct when different host shifts actually happened. And then you can dig in deeper into the, the sequences to figure out what are um, potential causal mutations that allow that transition to happen. So the first step is, well, well the first step was building the phylogeny. Second step is mapping on all of these, uh, the hosts that the viruses uh, were found in. And then the next step is to use that information and the principles of parsimony in order to reconstruct um, on what branch do we think the host range shift or the, the host range expansion or host shift uh, occurred. And so what I've done here is I've just minimized the phylogeny down to just one little section where it's very easy to see where this host shift happened in the phylogeny will then sort of move out and make the, make the problem more complex, of course. So um, what we're doing here is we have um, all of these different strains of, of influenza. Most of them are infecting uh, pigs, and one of them is able to infect humans. And so we want to ask, well, when did that strain evolve or to, um, to actually spread into human populations? And so what we see is that um, uh, we have 
all of these strains out here, all our pig strains, all our pig strains down here, and then we just have this one branch leading out to humans um, that, uh, that you know, has, has this one strain that is able to infect humans. And so uh, what we would say is that, okay, the most likely explanation, and this is very straightforward, is that there should be a mutation here that then leads out to humans. That you wouldn't put that mutation back here because then you'd have to then add in a bunch of host shifts um, throughout the rest of the phylogeny to reverse it back to, back to pigs. And so what we can do now is we can sort of start at that point and then go through the phylogeny and go deeper, deeper into evolutionary time and try to figure out, you know, how many different host shifts had to have happened in order to explain all of those different viral strains uh, and all of their different uh, hosts. And so um, the question that we're doing, we're just sort of zooming out in the phylogeny. We've added in this other group. That, that group, this monophyletic group here, uh, so we harp, we, we, I harped on um, being able to identify monophyletic groups in part so that we can read these phylogenies and um, more easily uh, show or, or um, establish, you know, when different types of evolution happen leading to, um, to things like host range or increased virulence or so forth. Okay, so uh, we know that back here, this was a pig that, uh, an ancestor, ancestral virus that was able to infect pig that gave rise to all these strains, but there was a host range shift here. Um, and so then we're moving back in time and there was a, um, we predict that this ancestor back here, the common ancestor to all of these, um, was also able to infect pigs. Uh, so take note that we, we predict that certain ancestors uh, were able to infect uh, a host. Um, and then the evolution along the branches is what determines um, whether or not they are able to infect a, a new species. So the actual expansions, the changes happen along the branches. And so now as we zoom out into the, um, into the phylogeny, um, we can see that there is another, there's another two group, two um, strains out here that are much, they have ancestors uh, that are much deeper in the phylogeny and, and the modern descendants are able to infect chickens. And so then the question is, you know, is this, is this one able to infect chickens or was it, or was it a pig one and then evolution out here uh, caused, the, caused the change from pigs to chicken? Um, so did it, was, the, was the ancestral state a chicken version um, and we get evolution to infecting pigs here or was it a pig version and we get evolution to infecting chickens here? And so if we sort of zoom out further, we can see that it, it appears that the ancestor was probably chicken and the reason why is that we see chicken reappearing again and again uh, in this larger phylogeny. So we have chicken back here. Um, we have chickens down here, especially. Yes, we have some pigs embedded here, um, but we have lots and lots of chickens throughout the phylogeny. And those chickens, when we look at the common ancestor of all the chickens 
uh, strains, they go back deeper into the phylogeny, suggesting that the ancestral virus was spreading in chickens and then its descendants then spread to other, other hosts. And so we can keep going through the phylogeny and adding in um, where different host range um, stuff, uh, uh, evolution or host range expansions happened. And so remember, we said, this is a, a chicken ancestor. Um, and then we predicted that these were all chicken ancestors, all of these nodes here. Um, and that, that helps explain why we have you know, chickens over here and we have chickens down here. But if all of these ancestors were chickens, um, then we have to incorporate some host range evolution in that now in order to explain how the strain could infect geese, uh, we would need a host shift to happen here. Um, we would have to have a host shift also to uh, pigs. Um, and we would have to have a host shift here also to pigs. So this would happen twice in its, in its evolution. Um, so this host range to pay, host shift to pigs uh, explains all of, all of these um, pig strains. Um, but of course, there's also this extra evolution that we already went over from pig to human. Um, and uh, so now as we go through the phylogeny, these are all chicken and the ancestors are chicken. Um, and then we see now there is a host range uh, shift to ducks. Um, there's another one uh, to humans. Uh, there's one to a tiger, actually, and then this is a bird, uh, so a type, probably a chicken. Uh, that doesn't require host range expansion. Um, and so this is part of the phylogeny, and we, we're already seeing that we're peppering it um, with these host transition events. And so if we zoom out even further in the phylogeny, um, we can keep reconstructing what's going on. Um, so... The question is, what's the ancestor of all of the phylogeny? And so under this scenario, it looks like you know, pigs are out here, and that leads to this deep ancestor in the, in the tree. Uh, pigs are out here as well. And so the common ancestor with pigs, uh, with this, these pig strains and these pig strains, are, um, is, this, is deep in the phylogeny. And so that is what led us to hypothesize that actually we probably started out with pigs, and then it actually quickly moved to horses. And the reason why you can see um, horses are deep in the phylogeny is because you have horses up here and you have horses down here. And if you connect back the common ancestor of the horse, it's going to connect you back to this really deep node in the phylogeny. Um, so we predicted that it would go pig to horse. Um, and then as you follow through the phylogeny, um, you have horse, and then you have um, horse to chicken. So this is that whole group that we already explained about chickens. Um, but we can follow this out and we have chicken to human uh, happening here. We have, um, and down here, so if we, we follow this branch here, this is, this is one that we said was pig. Um, and so it goes out, okay, that's pig. Um, but there's other branches uh, within here that we have to begin to explain. And so one of them is pig to human that explains all of these groups here. Um, then we have another one uh, that is also uh, pig to human. And so overall, if I look at the, the sort of right side of this phylogeny, 
um, you, you just see like this, this absolute mess of you know, this virus is being able to infect all of these different um, hosts. Uh, there are some patterns in it, but it's really hard to understand what's going on. Uh, but when you apply this phylogenetic information um, and the principles of parsimony, you can come up with a likely sequence in which host range changes happened. And so then that gives us information on host range evolution that we can learn and we can then make predictions about uh, what types of strains are likely to uh, cause host range expansions. So one of the things is that what we're finding in our lab is that if a strain has expanded its host range recently in its evolutionary history, then it's more likely to make another transition in the future. And so there's something about the adaptability of the strain that allows it, that perpetuates its ability to make that transition in the future. And so you can understand how um, you could use this information and you could say, okay, how many host range expansions uh, are happening uh, within different clades? And if a clade has uh, a lot of host range expansions, well, then there's some characteristic in that virus that's allowing it to do that. And that's what we want to sort of figure out. So this is, this is the real data. This is real data. I know that the, the cartoons uh, may give you the idea that it's not, uh, but they, they are. Um, and, uh, and it tells you just, you know, how often uh, viruses like influenza are able to shift hosts. Okay, so let's get into, actually, this is something more like what you would get on your exam. Uh, so what are the fewest number of host shifts that can explain the following phylogeny? Okay. So the answer is three, of course, in that amount of time, uh, you weren't able to answer it, but um, you know, go back through it and sort of pause it and then, and then look through the answer. So <clears throat> the way that I would go about answering this question is I would say, given all of these OTUs, are there any host species that reoccur often in the phylogeny? And are there any host species that tend to occur uh, sort of at the ends of the phylogeny. What that means is if you trace the common ancestor between the OTUs that go out to pig, um, does that common ancestor uh, go deep within the, the phylogenetic tree? And so that's the case here where we have pigs out here and we have pigs out here. And so we would hypothesize that the common ancestor infects pigs. Um, this could be, this hypothesis could be wrong, um, but it's, it's, a, it's our first stab at, at figuring out um, what's the most parsimonious explanation for the number of host range shifts that have happened in this phylogeny. And so once we establish that this is pig out here, then we sort of, we can go through the phylogeny and we can say, okay, well, you know, these strains here infect humans, and so we have to have a... a a transition and these strains here infect chickens and so we have to have transitions to explain that as well and so you could say oh, okay this is all pig and this is pig and this is pig uh, and then we have a change from pig to humans however a more parsimonious way of explaining this is to say let's change this from pig to chicken and so then that captures this group here and this and humans. Um, and then we can also, and it captures um, 
this chicken group down here as well. Um, and so we are able to then uh, say, okay, these are all chickens, um, and now we, but we have to now explain humans, and so that would be a, a change from chickens uh, to humans here in the phylogeny. So we're still missing this group here, which doesn't, which is still pig. So we have, we put in a, a chicken mutation here, but it's still pig here. And so we have to say pig uh, to chicken as well. I guess the, the key to answering these, these questions is to sort of just work through it and try to figure out the fewest times that you can put tick marks in, in order to explain this pattern out here. And these can be frustrating at first to be able to solve, but actually they're, they're, they're kind of fun uh, to do. Um, it's one of these, these complex problems. And uh, once you get the hang of it, you can, you can really sort of move through them quickly. And so as you can tell, I'm, I'm sort of stumbling, stumbling to explain uh, exactly how to do this. Um, but what it requires is just practice. So one, I should have probably started out with this uh, incorrect answer. Um, this, is, this answer is incorrect, not because it gives you the wrong pattern out here, but because it is not as parsimonious as this, this answer. So let's, let's actually take a breath and step back for a second and say, okay, we established that pigs um, were the ancestor uh, to, to all of the descendant viruses that are out here. And then what we could do is we can work through the phylogeny and say, okay, well, you know, this group here, these two OTUs, that has to be explained by a pig to a chicken. So we start there and we say, okay, done. And then we go through here and we say, okay, um, this group out here, that has to be explained by a pig to a chicken as well. Okay, put a, put a mark in there. And then we go through here, we say, oh, here's another uh, chicken cluster. And so we put a mark in here to say there's evolution that happened that allowed the, the pig variant to change into chickens. And then we go over here and we say, oh, okay, there's, there's groups that um, are able to infect, infect humans, so we have to go pigs uh, to humans. Um, and so that, that makes sense. That gives you this pattern. It could be correct, but there's actually a simpler explanation for this evolution. And so the way that you can, so if you arrived at this answer, the way that you can see that there's probably a more parsimonious solution is the fact that there's all of these pig to chickens clustered together. And so it makes you question, you know, is there a change that could have happened deeper in the phylogeny so that um, I only need to explain some of these multiple changes with a single mutation? And so that is what gives us, so if you started out with that wrong answer and saw that pattern, then you would start playing around with different um, ways of the virus mutating to cause different host range shifts. And so this is actually much simpler where we have just a single pig to chicken change here that explains. So that single change explains all of these guys. Then what we have to do is we have to have a chicken to human change here. And then down here, yes, these OTUs are clustered with this one. Um, but if we have a mutation here, then it gives rise to just these four it doesn't give rise to these two. We have to go sort of deeper in the phylogeny. And so uh, we could put a, 
put a mark here. I guess I haven't uh, done this before, but we could sort of walk through, you know, if we actually had a pig to chicken change here, then it would give rise to all of, all of these would be explained by that change back there. And then we'd have to have one more change here, which would be um, chicken to human, the same as, as is listed. But then we'd also have to another change here where it goes from chicken back to pig. And so that would actually be an equally parsimonious explanation. That's just three changes. Um, and so that would be fine uh, as well. That would, that would give you the exact same. And so this is just like building a phylogeny where you can have multiple equally parsimonious explanations that then you would report sort of in a, in a paper, these sort of multiple explanations um, and so forth, just like you would do that with a phylogeny and those, um, those confidence scores. So yeah, these are the types of questions that you'll answer. And it really um, gets at this idea of being able to uh, interpret when certain transmission events happened in phylogenies of diseases. Okay, I guess uh, before we, we leave this, this section on using phylogenies to predict when host ranges, host range shift, shifts happen, I want to point out that this is a relatively new phylogeny of influenza. Um, this is H1N1 phylogeny. Um, this is over recent, you know, in recent history. Um, and we see that H1N1 has evolved um, and caused lots and lots of different host shifts. We can see that, um, and, and the, these host shifts happen in recent history. What's really interesting about this phylogeny is that the um, the ancestral variant of the virus that then spread to all of these different um, all of these different hosts was one that infected humans. So we can see human strains uh, throughout this phylogeny. Uh, and so often I think we think of other organisms as being reservoir species for viruses that infect us, but we have to also think about the flip side where humans could actually be the reservoir species for emergence into, into other animal animals as well. Uh, so I guess the arrow kind of goes in both ways. And there are so many humans around the world and we um, are on every continent. And so there's a lot of opportunity for our viruses to also spread to wildlife uh, and uh, domesticated animals. Okay. So for the next part of the lecture, I want to really focus in on what's going on when we put these little red ticks. And so these red ticks are, you know, a series of evolutionary changes, a series of mutations that allow the organism um, to spread to a new, a, a new host. And so the example that we're going to hone in on is one that's very well studied, and it's chicken to human. So uh, bird flu evolving to be able to infect humans. Bird flu is H5N1. The... Um, Paper that we're going to go over today is this one uh, that was published in 2012. Uh, there's a number of papers that are very similar to this one that were actually published at the same time. Um, this is just the one that I'm going to focus on. Uh, and in this study, um, this is an experimental study. So they are working with um, influenza strains in the lab, um, and they are altering the influenza strains in ways that they think would allow a bird flu strain to then infect humans. And the idea behind this research, you know, is not to make some sort of pandemic causing strain, um, but is 
in order to figure out what are the types of mutations that could cause a pandemic causing strain. And so the key to this research is that they had honed in onto a um, really uh, mutations that are occurring in a single protein, uh, that's the receptor binding protein in influenza that is called HA. And so we know that the, this is analogous to the spike protein in SARS-CoV-2 um, that we've talked a lot about and talked about adaptations in that spike protein and how mutations there could lead to its expansion into the human population. Well, you know, every time I've talked about it, I've said could, uh, whereas in bird flu, we actually do know the types of mutations that can lead to uh, its expansion into humans. And so this is the research that tells us that. So HA um, is like the spike protein. Um, HA is this protein that's on the, the outer membrane of influenza particles. So this is an influenza particle. Um, so, you know, very similar looking to, um, to the coronavirus. People have been studying HA uh, for a very long time, and they have been introducing mutations into HA and seeing whether or not they affect um, its ability to bind to its host cell. So the way that HA works is, so this is a protein structure of HA. This is actually not the whole protein, but we've just zoomed into the reactive region of the protein. And HA interacts with um, these molecules, uh, sialic um, acid, on the outer membrane of host cells. So remember, coronavirus uses ACE2, that protein on the outer membrane of human cells and on uh, bat cells, whereas uh, influenza uses a completely different molecule, uh, this carbon molecule that is that hangs outside of human cells and outside of uh, bird cells and also uh, pig cells. And it turns out that there's multiple different forms of this uh, sialic acid, and um, human cells tend to have this form, while bird cells and some pig cells uh, tend to have this form. And so these are, these are, you can tell, are very similar structures, but the way that these two groups are connected together, these two um, uh, compounds are connected together, is different. And that difference is actually significant at a molecular level and determines um, how good this protein on the flu is able to bind to the, the outer membrane of the cells. Okay. So um, for a long time, people have been studying this uh, HA protein, and they've been introducing mutations into the HA protein and seeing whether or not it influences how well it can bind to human sialic acid or avian sialic acid or so forth. And so there's a lot of candidate mutations for ones that might influence whether or not the virus is able to then uh, transfer to humans and spread from one human to the next human. So the experiment, and if you want to look at the paper, um, it's you know excellent work. Uh, but when you read through the the methods and you read through the paper, it is a jumble of different ways that they modified the virus, and it can be really complicated to follow. And so you don't need to know all of this information. You don't need to know this information on this slide. Uh, but I wanted to provide the steps uh, for what the researchers did, so that if you are reading the paper. Uh, you can understand, it, it'll give you kind of a, um, a guide 
uh, that will help you understand what's going on in the paper. So they started with an H5N1 strain that they had actually isolated from a human. So it had already made a jump from a bird to a human. But the problem with why um, bird flu doesn't cause pandemics, even though there are cases where it jumps into humans, is that it has a hard time spreading from one human to another human. So this strain of H5N1 is not able to spread from one human to another human, although they did discover it in a human, so it spread from bird to human. And so they thought, okay, this is a good starting point because maybe there's some characteristics of the strain, some mutations that allowed it to even infect the, the, the initial human. And so then they also, they mutagenized the HA gene because they thought, well, this is used for host recognition. This is what triggers the infection cycle. And so, um, you know, changes here are gonna unlock human cells. And so they mutagenized it. And then they had all of these different variants and they selected uh, HA variants to see whether or not they bind to the human molecule rather than the bird molecule. And so they then selected out. So this is, this is a laboratory selection, but it's, much, it's very similar to the types of selection that can happen in nature as well, um, where you know, it'll, they might select out um, HA variants that can better bind to human cells and better spread in humans. Um, then they also did this thing where they recombined portions of the genome of the, this strain here that they're creating with H1N1 that is known to spread in humans. So they thought maybe there's some other incompatibilities in the, in the genome that will stop this virus from being able to spread. And so they did this recombination, and those kinds of recombinations do happen naturally. Then they created a strain that they actually were able to see that it, it could spread not in humans, obviously you don't do this experiment in humans, but in ferrets. Ferrets are a model organism that have very similar um, sialic acid and very similar respiratory cells, such that the way that influenza spreads in ferrets is very similar to the way that it spreads in humans. So that's our model system is in ferrets. And the last step of the process is that this strain here, at this step, actually wasn't able to spread in ferrets. It then gained an additional mutation during their experiments that allowed it to spread from one ferret to another ferret. Okay, so that's the framework of what they're doing. And let's actually just look at the data. So how did they design this experiment? So um, they have this, uh, they have the virus that they're engineering. And then they're saying, okay, after we engineered this virus, if we give it to ferrets that are in one cage that are separated by, from ferrets that are in another cage, can this virus transfer from these ferrets over to these ferrets and mount an infection in these ferrets? So we know that you know, a lot of strains of this virus can jump into humans or jump into ferrets, but the question is, have we augmented the strain in a way that allows it to then transfer to other fer ferrets you know, not through direct contact or bodily fluids, but actually, you know, through the air. And so uh, what we're measuring is plaques. So these are uh, also uh, called PFUs, plaque-forming units. Uh, so what, what you do is you take a, a sample from ferrets and you put it on a Petri dish or a, it's actually a tissue culture dish uh, where you have human cells or ferret cells growing on that dish and if there are viruses in your ferret sample, 
uh, that are viable, they'll actually produce these clearings on the plate. These round clearings are associated with a single viral particle that landed and created this plaque forming unit. Uh, and so you just count up the PFUs and that tells you, okay, I gave the virus to these ferrets and now they're, you know, they're, they're being infected by, by the virus and there's more PFUs now than what I delivered to the ferrets and so they're causing an infection. Um, and then the question is, do these ferrets now get infections? And then if I sampled for PFUs, do I see viral particles? Do I see viable viruses uh, producing plaques? And so the experiment is a little bit more complicated and here are the data. Um, and so now what we're doing is we don't just have one virus that we're testing. We have lots of different virus strains that we've constructed. Um, and then uh, we're sampling the ferrets at different times uh, during the experiment. Uh, this will give us a dynamic of infection within the ferrets and also how they spread the disease to the other ferrets. So we're measuring how many viruses are infecting the ferrets. We measure at four different days. Um, our limit of detection is one log 10 PFUs per milliliter. So if the, if the virus is really rare, we were unable to detect it in our samples. Um, in, our, in our output, the thing that we're measuring is PFU plaque forming units. Okay, so these are, these are the actual data. Um, and uh, here are our, this is describing the different viruses that we're using in the experiment. And so just to, just to sort of use this image to, to walk through what this is, these are viruses isolated from ferrets at different time points that are the ones that were directly administered the virus. And then these are the ferrets um, that are in the cage next door to the blue ferrets. And so the question is whether or not these ferrets are transferring to these ferrets. And so let's just look at the, the positive control, H1N1 control. And so remember, we're studying H5N1. The positive control is H1N1 because we know that it, it spreads um, in humans and it also spreads in ferrets. And so we give these ferrets a high dose of the virus, they have the virus, and then initially these ferrets do not have the virus, um, but soon after that, um, by day number three, uh, lots of the ferrets do have the virus, and that virus maintains for, for many days. So this is the positive control, and it tells us that our experimental setup is actually working. So then um, what we have here is, this is where we put in two different mutations, into that virus that we're engineering, um, and we see that it's unable to spread. There's no ferrets on this side in this cage that uh, are able to, uh, that have received the virus. So their, their uh, brothers next door uh, are infected, but it just doesn't spread to them. Here, this is another, um, another this is just a, a, a series of other mutations, um, another mutant strain, and we can see actually this one's doing worse, even in these ferrets, you know, it takes off a little bit in a few ferrets, but then it drops back out, um, and it certainly doesn't spread uh, to these guys. Then we add in another mutation, and so these are actually three new mutations into this, um, into this strain, uh, and what we find is that it's doing really well in the ferrets, uh, so that suggests that, you know, maybe this is one that would be more easily easy to, to spread to other ferrets. Um, and when we look at this data over here, uh, what we find is just 
most of the ferrets are not infected, but there are this this ferret got infected, um, and then and then this one here as well, uh, and so it it suggests that there's some ability for this virus to spread. Well, then they they took out they looked at this virus and they saw that oh actually that virus has an additional mutation in its HA gene. So they said well maybe it's not that this virus here has low ability to spread to here, but maybe during our experiment, this virus evolved an additional mutation that is now allowing it to spread. And so they tested that hypothesis by taking this virus and starting the experiment over again. And what they find is that with this virus, um, it's able to uh, mount an infection in the, in the ferrets very well, just like up here. Uh, but now this virus is much more able to spread uh, through the air to the, the ferrets in the cage next door. And so this is the strain that we're talking about that has, it has four mutations in its HA gene that now allow it to spread from one ferret to another ferret. This is a virus that seems like one that um, should be able to um, cause a pandemic. So we have a negative control here, uh, which is just a viral strain that we know doesn't spread from one ferret to another ferret. And we see that in fact, that negative control um, bears, bears uh, negative results, so that's good. So that virus there uh, with the four mutations gives robust mammal-to-mammal -mammal, uh, spread. So the conclusion of that is that it requires four mutations in the HA of bird flu in order to come up with a strain that might be able to spread in humans. So this work was highly, highly controversial. Um, there were, there actually before the paper even came out, um, there was news that this paper was coming out in another paper. Um, this was the one in, in the journal Nature, but there was also one coming out in Science. And the news spread, and so actually um, government shut down or asked the journals to not publish these papers. This is just, um, uh, a screenshot of all of these different articles that came out saying, no, 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 do not publish this research. It's too dangerous that we do not want people to have this information. So there is an ongoing debate and it's not completely resolved. Although, as you know, the, the paper was eventually published. Um, and so the, the side that came down on, on providing information and providing research uh, ended up winning out but this is still a very controversial topic. And so there's sort of two sides of the debate. One was to stop this type of research and one was um, to have more of this type of research. So the why you should stop the research was, well, this, this strain could escape from the lab and cause a pandemic. And so that's, you know, that's this conspiracy theory about SARS-CoV-2. Um, the mutations in SARS-CoV-2 look very natural. As you saw with this experiment, uh, they had to do a lot of stuff to the strain in order to get it to spread from one ferret to another ferret. And those are very unnatural uh, recombinations and different types of edits. Um, and so there is a signature in the genome that suggests that like, something really strange happened to this virus before it was able to, to spread um, between ferrets. And so those types of genomic signatures do not exist in the SARS-CoV-2, suggesting that it's, it's a natural variant. Okay, but back to our debate, the idea is that the strain could escape from the lab. And on this side, they said, well, you know, this is being performed in biosafety 
uh, three facilities, but we could up it to biosafety four, and that these are these are facilities that are very sophisticated and locked down, um, and what we think are very safe to to do research on this type of um, deadly pathogen. And so other people thought, well, you know, terrorists could get the the basically the recipe for how to make H5N1 that can spread in humans, and they could construct the same H5N1 and then cause a pandemic. This seems unlikely, although, you know, the more and more sophisticated that people get, um, the more likely, I guess, that could be. And then on this side, people are saying, well, we need to do this research. And the reason why we need to do this research is that we need to be able to identify what are the mutations so that we can look at natural variants of influenza and figure out, is it close to emerging and spreading in humans to cause the next pandemic? And so this type of research was being done in coronavirus um, in, at that Wuhan Institute and by EcoHealth Alliance. And of course, they, they weren't already there to make perfect predictions of which strain would emerge. Um, but people are thinking about this and doing this kind of research with the idea to be able to predict pandemics. But the people on this side said, well, even if you figured out what are the bad mutations, what are you going to do about it? We don't really have the technology yet uh, to intervene. Um, but, you know, there's an argument on the other side that says, well, we need to know what they are, and then we can develop the types of technology to intervene. And then the argument that really fascinated me and that I proved was uh, a false argument is that the people on this side said, well, your paper says that it requires four mutations. And the possibility of a, of a virus naturally evolving these four mutations is, is basically zero. And so this is so unlikely to happen that it's not going to happen in nature. And therefore you've just created this Frankenstein strain for no good reason, because we'll never see those variants rising in nature. So the criticism was that natural evolutionary processes would not give you this adaptation because they required four mutations. So the logic of that is based on the logic that we've already gone through in this class on um, how you get multi-drug resistance when it takes multiple different mutations to confer resistance to multiple drugs. Um, so here we have four mutations to confer an adaptation to spread to between ferrets, likely between humans as well. And so you can answer this question. Okay. So what we find is that it's an enormously low probability, low chance of actually getting these four mutations simultaneously happening in the genome at a, a given time. And so that argument seems valid to me that you, know, you would never get random four mutations to yield this, um, this adaptation. But our research in my lab shows that yes, that's true, what they're saying, but there's other evolutionary processes like natural selection that would be able to promote um, some of those mutations and then possibly lead to the accumulation of all four of those mutations and that host range expansion. So in my lab, um, we don't study influenza, we study a harmless virus, a bacterial phage. However, what we see in my lab is that 
it evolves very similarly to the way that other viruses evolve, and it's a good model system for basically doing these gain-of-function experiments because you don't run the risk of creating a pandemic-causing strain. So um, our, my PhD research was reported about in the New York Times by Carl Zimmer. This is a great article that's still online if you guys want to look it up. Um, but uh, it basically it weighs in on this last point in the debate of whether or not viruses could evolve these types of adaptations. And so in my lab, what we do is we run these evolution experiments where we have our host, which is E. coli, and our virus is this bacteriophage lambda. Uh, and we co-culture these two organisms together under very controlled lab conditions. Uh, we let the bacteria grow up in, in nutrients that are in this uh, flask and the phage obviously infect the bacteria and they grow up as well. Um, and then we can co-culture them for a number of days. Uh, and we can see, we can sequence the whole genome of the viruses, the whole genome of the bacteria, and see how they evolve and co-evolve with one another. So there's one particular experiment that we set out in order to see if we could get phage lambda to evolve to use a different outer membrane receptor. So the spike protein uses ACE2, uh, influenza uses uh, the sialic acid, and lambda phage uses a very specific protein on the outer membrane of E. coli. And so we set out an experiment to see, can we get lambda to evolve to use a new protein? Then this would be a model system in which we could understand the types of evolutionary processes that lead a virus to use a new receptor. That's a key step in a virus evolving to use a new host species. And so this is just the cartoon version of what's going on in our experiments where we have a, a, a bacterial cell. That bacterial cell has lots and lots of different proteins expressed on the outer membrane, um, but the one that Lambda uses is called Lamb-B. This is the protein structure of Lamb-B. This is obviously just the cartoon. Um, and then Lambda, this is what the phage looks like. It looks different than the uh, human viruses that we've been looking at in that it doesn't have tons of spike proteins on the capsid here, but it has just um, one cluster of spike proteins at the end of its tail. Um, and so these are the host recognition proteins, these are J. And so J interacts with Lamb-B and it triggers the infection. So we ask the question, this is normally what the outer membrane of uh, E. coli looks like, where it has lots and lots of different outer membrane proteins, um, lots of different, so the blue are uh, Lamb-B, lots of molecules of Lamb-B on the outer membrane, uh, so the phage can easily find its, its host cell um, and infect it. And we ask the question, if we reduce the number of Lamb-B molecules on the outer membrane of E. coli, would that promote the evolution of Lambda to be able to target one of these other outer membrane proteins? So there's lots of different outer membrane proteins. Some of them are very similar to Lamb-B. And so the question is, you know, would there be selection and evolution that allows Lambda to be able to use one of these other, other proteins? And so we ran an experiment with 96 different replicates, and we found that one in four, so 24 out of 96, uh, actually led to a virus that was able to use a new protein. Uh, this is a major transition for a virus to be able to use a, a new protein. And it happened on average just in 12 days. This is a very short experiment. 
I couldn't believe that it, it happened so quickly and that it happened so often, one in four flasks. And so um, what, what had evolved is a new virus that was able to use OMPF. It's a very similar protein to LAMB-B. It's on the outer membrane of E. coli. And now the Lambda was able to use both LAMB-B and this new receptor, OMPF. So we did whole genome sequencing, and we found that the main gene that was evolving was this J gene. And we found that there were four specific mutations in that J gene that allow Lambda to use the new receptor, OMPF. And when we look at the protein structure of J and where these mutations are, the um, pattern is so similar to what we see in influenza, where we have most of the mutations are occurring, so three mutations in both of them, um, in the reactive region of the protein. So this is the region of the protein that for lambda interacts with uh, lamb B and now OMPF. Um, and this is the region of influenza that interacts with uh, sialic acid, human versus uh, avian. And then we also find that in both of them, there are these, these uh, mutations that occur deeper in the structure of the protein. And so it's thought that these sort of change some kind of characteristic of the structure of the protein that allows it to then be amenable to interacting with these new receptors. Okay, so both of these systems it requires four mutations. This system, we, got, we arrived at those four mutations artificially, but in this system, we just let nature take over. Yeah, we cultured these things in the lab, but we didn't engineer them. We just let the natural mutation process and natural selection yield a variant that could interact with this new receptor. And so the next question is, well, you know, if it requires four mutations, how the hell did this thing evolve at all? Like, and how did it evolve in just 12 days? You know, it seems so unlikely to acquire four mutations. How did this actually happen? And so that's that question there. And the answer to the question is that the first three mutations don't evolve to use that new receptor they evolve to do something completely different. Then, once you get those first three mutations, the genome is set up so that if that fourth mutation happens, it gives you that new function, it allows you to use that new receptor OMF. This is an example, and same with influenza, where we have a four-way genetic interaction. This is higher order epistasis. This is really a crazy thing that, that uh, can happen in biological systems, or just one mutation can't do it, two, three, but you actually have to have an interaction between all four. And we did lots of genetic experiments to, to prove that you really do need all four of these. So the question is now, what do the first three mutations do? Why are they, and we, we could tell that they were actually selected for by natural selection by doing that DNDS ratio. All of the mutations that we observed in the J were non-synonymous changes. We didn't see any synonymous changes. That's a huge, uh, the NDS ratio, and so it suggested that the mutations were adaptive, but they weren't giving function. The first three weren't giving function on the new receptor, so what were they doing? Let me step back and sort of put you into the, the mind of a virus particle trying to find its host. So we have a virus particle, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't swim, it just floats around, it doesn't have eyes, it can't sense things. Um, it just sort of floats around until it finds that receptor that it can bind to, and then it binds to that receptor, injects its DNA, 
and causes an infection and causes the cell to produce more viral particles. So the virus as it is has to float around a lot. It has to find just that receptor. And remember that it's being cultured in an environment where there's very few LAMB molecules on the outer membrane of E. coli. So, so even if it, it kind of comes in contact with the cell, it's not keyed in to these other molecules. It's only keyed into this one. And so it'll just continue to sort of wander around aimlessly until it finds this one spot. And so those are, those are very few in this large flask space. So what if the virus could sort of wander? It has to, you know, it can't swim. It just wanders around. But it can find, when it does bump into a, a cell, it says, oh, you know, I, this cell, this thing that I'm, that I'm interacting with now, um, it's likely to be a cell, and I should not keep wandering in open space, but I should sort of wander on the outer membrane of this cell so that I can find my, my doorway into the cell, my receptor. And so then it could sort of just have, it, instead of wandering through this huge space, just wander on the outer membrane of the cell and get into that, that and find its key receptor and then get its DNA and cause the infection. So it had just cut out all of this extra time by honing in its search just to the outer membrane of the cell. So what we find is that what the first three mutations do is that they make that J protein more promiscuous. So that J protein now, when it, uh, when it encounters the outer membrane and the other proteins on the outer membrane of this cell, it then says, oh, okay, this is something, this is something that I know I should interact with, and so it stays on the surface of the cell, it binds these proteins, it's unable to use the proteins to inject its DNA and to cause an infection, but it can sort of wander around these proteins and then get to its actual receptor and inject its DNA. So these, these mutations are adaptive in that they allow the phage to more quickly hone in to where its key receptor is, LAMB. So that's the first three mutations. The fourth mutation, and I should say before I go on, um, that this research was actually done by an alumnus, Sarah Medina, uh, who took by BIEB 152. Uh, it is also being done by a current student in the lab, Katja Garcia, and another current student in the lab who I hope will eventually take this course, uh, Cesar Del Fuente. So um, these are all undergrads are doing this really cool research and give us a key insight to how you get these first three steps of evolution that then lead you to a genome that you can get that fourth mutation. So the story behind the fourth mutation is also really crazy in that the way it works is it breaks this fundamental rule in biology um, that we all learn about in intro biology class. So we learn about um, the central dogma of biology, right? That's where an uh, DNA encodes for a single RNA molecule, encodes for a single peptide, encodes for a single folded protein. But what the, the last mutation in combination with the pr previous three mutations do is it creates a protein, a J protein, that is able to fold into multiple different conformations. And so one of those conformations can interact still with LAMB, and another conformation is able to interact with OMBEF and give the virus the ability to now use OMBEF as a second receptor. 
And so the virus is actually able to multitask uh, because it's able to just create with the same, with the same, a single genome that has these mutations in it, it's able to create, and it's a single peptide, um, but now that peptide folds into different conformations and can allow the virus to, to use different receptors. And so that's, that's pretty cool. It's breaking a rule. That's how it gets this innovation. And so now the question in our lab is, you know, does this type of evolution happen in um, viruses in nature? I'm specifically interested in whether or not this type of evolution happened to the precursor virus of SARS-CoV-2. And so we will be studying that uh, bioinformatically, and we are teaming up with lots of other virologists uh, to study their viruses and to see if this mechanism here, this viral multitasking, happens in other systems as well. Okay, so one last shout out to one last um, former uh, lab member, uh, Professor Katie Petrie, who uh, teaches some extraordinary classes here on bioinformatics, uh, also microbiology lab. Um, and so definitely look, uh, look out for Katie Petrie's classes. Often people who like this class also like her classes. So, yep, I'm glad I could share my research with you guys. So just to summarize all this, um, by mapping host range onto phylogenies, it allows us to pinpoint when host range shifts occurred and how, many, how often host, ranges, uh, host range shifts uh, happen. Viral gain-of-function experiments can be used to pinpoint which mutations could cause disease emergence. However, of course, these uh, experiments can be controversial. And viruses can rapidly evolve the necessary mutations to use new receptors and possibly infect new host species. That's what my research shows. Thank you guys very much. Um, and let me know if you have any questions. Take care. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.